Write the world-changing book that will help grow your personal brand and your business as it makes the world a better place. Welcome to the Author's Corner, hosted by Robin Colucci. Every episode, we bring you some of the most successful authors, as well as other industry experts, to share some inspiration, motivation, tactical strategy, and fun. We'll also talk about the challenges and trends in the publishing industry. Don't get stuck in the idea phase. Join the Author's Corner today. Start writing the book you've dreamed about. Welcome to the Author's Corner. I'm your host, Robin Colucci, and today we have with us Deborah Olatunji. She is a Philadelphia-based writer, storyteller, igniter, and the talk show host of the Voices of Disruption podcast. Now, Deborah is a freshman and nursing major at the University of Pennsylvania, and she connects her passion for creativity and advocacy on her platforms by sharing her stories of personal growth and advancing change in education, reform, mental health awareness, and racial justice. She is the author of the book, Unleashing Your Innovative Genius, High School Redesigned. And Deborah will share with us today some of her incredibly fascinating and I think tremendous insights into education and how we can ignite our students of today and tomorrow to become curious innovators. And one of the reasons I wanted to have Deborah on today is because she actually published her first book when she was in high school, which I think is a tremendous achievement. And I hope our listeners will take this as an inspiration that this is an attainable goal for anyone who has the passion and drive and follow through to get it done as Deborah has so clearly demonstrated. So I hope that you enjoy this episode and sit back and enjoy. Well, Deborah, welcome to the Author's Corner. I'm so happy to have you with us today. Hey, Robin, thank you so much for having me. I cannot wait to have this conversation with you. I'm excited about so many things about you and about having you on the show. I think so far you are definitely our youngest author guest. <laughs> so uh, I'm going to have a lot of questions about that because I think that the fact that you are a published author, I guess it was really before you were out of high school, right? In your senior year of high school, you know, could be so inspiring to some many young listeners or maybe their parents. <laughs> But before we get to that, I wanted to go back a little bit before you decided to write the book and when you got really ignited, if you will pardon my borrowing your uh, favorite word, <laughs> which is a great word, um, but ignited about empowering kids to really take on their own education. What were you observing or experiencing that sparked that flame for you? I think if I could trace it back and there isn't a singular moment because I feel like, you know, with the way success is, nothing is linear and I can't just point out like this was the exact thing that made me think the way that I do. But I think when I went to this camp called the ACLU Summer Advocacy Institute in 2018, I was just bombarded with so many new ideas and perspectives 
there were over a thousand high school students, high school juniors and seniors from all across the country. And coming from a really small town in Delaware, I had never experienced anything like this before. So I was floored with the opportunity to meet new people. We had like little pods and homerooms of 30 or more people so we could get to know other students on a deeper level. But I think it was in this place that I realized just how audacious and like bold my generation is. And then just the amount of viewpoints that there was, was refreshing to me. And honestly, that's, that's where it started. And we had conversations about advocacy in different areas from immigration to education reform, gender equality, you know, things with the election, because we were getting really close to the midterms mm -hmm. and, you know, the 2020 election was just two years away. Thinking about that now, 2021 <laughs> is crazy, but. Flooded with goosebumps. <laughs> just the yeah. thought of, you know, being before the election, but that was the time period that we were in and. I think that my high school and even many high schools across the country, we often talk about social studies and history and English in a more academic sense, instead of looking at things from an advocacy based level. And that was where the word advocacy was introduced to me. The idea of canvassing, we were marching on Capitol Hill and we had signs and posters and everything. And I think it was in that moment that I realized that, you know, if I care about something or if there's a problem that I want to solve, I can go for that thing. And there's going to be a community of activists who are already doing the work in this area that I can plug into and learn from so that the things that I want to do, the things that I want to, you know, I'm supported on both sides and can be supported and can be supporting other people, you know, who have been doing this work. And so that was around the pre-book time because it was in July 2018. And I think it was two or three months earlier in April or May, that was when my older sister had reached out to the publishing company that we ended up going with New Degree Press, and she was working on getting a assisted publishing with them. And I reached out, I had this idea, I was like, yeah, let's change education, like it'll be like the secret sauce and whatnot. And they were like, you know, we're not really working with younger authors at this time period, high school isn't our focus. And so it was Three months after my ACLU experience in October of 2018, the professor that runs that program reached out to me and he was like, you know, we're trying to find high school students who want to write books. We want to help you guys and really give you the support that you need. And so the pieces were kind of all falling together. And I was like, do I really, really want to do this? And once I started getting into the interview stage of asking questions and even discovering what parts of education that I wanted to change, that was when the smart ignited. Yeah, as I'm listening to you, I was recalling something I read that you said at some point, which is, you know, it's one thing to study how laws are made and it's another thing to write one. And I think you could say the same about writing a book, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, or anything, right? I think probably the most common analogy is writing a bicycle, right? You can, oh, yeah. you can study that all day long, but you won't be able to ride a bicycle unless you get on a bike. <laughs> so um, that's amazing. And I'm, Curious, sorry, I got so sidetracked by that image, I lost my train of thought. But, you know, you were talking about finding community and finding support inside your community. And so when you decided to write a book, like what was that navigation process like for you? And where did you find support along the way? I mean, like I mentioned earlier, my older sister was a very big source of support because she ended up publishing a book, I believe, in September of 2019. So I knew someone who had, you know, known a little bit about the industry to break into it and to explore this new field that I had never done before. But I also had 
a mentor, my English teacher, my AP Lang teachers, who's a really, really big support for me. And then we had a team of editors, my marketing editor became one of my closest friends. And I still talk to her to this day. And then even just better readers. I was reaching out to some of my friends and also high schoolers from other areas to ask them, you know, will you read this book? Because yes, there are adults who are revising and there's a copy editor who's out of my age range. And I think it would be so much more beneficial if I had, you know, the real audience that I was trying to connect to read this book. And so from doing that, and even talking with the state senator, her interview was in the book, I realized that there was so much in education. And there was a very large gray area in terms of what I thought I was interested in when I first submitted that proposal at, at the end of May 2018 to where I was when I finally started writing in January of 2019. And what I realized when I was in this writing process is that if we could boil down this huge topic of education into like a couple of words, it's that it needs to become a system where students feel empowered to create and connect with one another with their diverse interests and in creating a world where everyone feels like they can connect and create with each other. And that's not what our education system is doing right now. You know, there's so much of a push towards perfectionism and competition and toxicity, and no one's really talking about their feelings or emotions or what any of their experiences, you know, mean to them. And so when I took a step back and realized that, I noticed that I had a real interest in mental health advocacy mm-hmm. and just having more conversations on representation, especially as a Black student in a predominantly white school. And these were not conversations that were being had. And so I took it on myself as almost like the onus to start the conversation and to keep it rolling. And even as I was going on tour pre-pandemic, uh, most of the comments that I was getting from students was that I feel so empowered and inspired by you because this is a conversation that I really, really wish we were having and you're having it. And that just shows me that, you know, we're just getting into the building blocks of things and I have a place in this conversation. I think that's such a powerful thing. And I think the earlier in life that you can help people realize that, the better. Because a lot of times it takes many years of trying to play the game, trying to do things the way that they're done, you know, trying to fit into the mold of what a good student looks like that really end up holding people back. Exactly. Um, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, it's, I was going to say it's a continuous amount of effort also. And I relate this to an experience that I'm having right now. Two weeks ago, I kind of had like an existential crisis. <laughs> and I was like, am I in the right major? Did I choose the right thing? And it's like, yes, we need to have conversations on creating and connecting and not being in the mold and kind of finding our own paths, but also understand that it's not going to be linear. There are going to be moments when you doubt yourself and you doubt the things that you're able to do, but by having a community and knowing how to search for one, that'll help pull you out. Cause that's what helped pull me out last week. That'll help pull you out of that crisis and get you right back on track. Yeah. Yeah. And also sometimes that feedback you get is trying to tell you that maybe there's a refinement to the track or maybe there's more clarification. I mean, I'm really hearing in your author journey that there was a great deal of clarification that happened from the first time you proposed your idea to the time that you were actually writing the book. What did you experience as you were writing the book in terms of refining and clarifying your ideas? Yeah. um, So because the publishing company, the way that it worked was that you started from an idea. This was something I'd never experienced before. You know, usually, you know, with traditional publishing, you have a manuscript and you submit it and the idea really evolved. <laughs> yeah, the idea really evolved. I mean, from the start, I was mm-hmm. kind of writing this like a textbook and I was noticing that. And I was like, I don't really like this. It reads like a student who is looking at education policy instead of 
personal development and empowering students. And that was when I had a phone call with Aaron. He's the person who leads the program. And I was like, I'm thinking about activity period. And that's something that we had in our high school where you had 30 minutes in the day to do a club. And that was kind of the time block that we had. And we didn't have any after school activities other than sports. And so I was like, what if we had 30 minutes of every single day in our classrooms to do whatever we want, not clubs, just exploring our interests. And how can we add to that? Why does it just have to be 30 minutes? Why can't it be the whole school day where students are being able to lead and connect with people in however they want? And similar to what Finland is doing right now, build a curriculum that they're actually excited to go to school about. And so once I got into that idea, I was like, oh my goodness, I need to add like calls to action and like more student stories and space in the book for students to just write and just put their feelings down. And it was just completely different from what I thought I was going to write. And I think that's the beauty of the book writing process. I think with traditional publishing and even smaller publishing houses, like there's so much flexibility and growth from the first idea that you have. And just acknowledging that, I think that's even more beautiful from the moment when you're actually holding your book. It's realizing, you know, I grew so much. And this book was something way before what it is now. And now it's this incredible story that I get to continue to share with other people. Yeah, that's so spot on. And just for clarification, with a traditional publisher, you, you submit a proposal usually for nonfiction okay. with summaries of the chapters of pretty much what you think you're going to write. And it's the same, though. It's still a very iterative process. And there's a lot of clarity that comes in the development of the idea and getting to that final product. And, you know, one of the things that I'm really hearing in what you're sharing that is so universally true is that it's the process that you go through of writing that transforms you into an author. It's not having the book in your hand, you know, and (laughs) I can tell that you experienced that firsthand, which just uh, thrills me to see. And how did you feel different? Because I do think that there is, like when you have the book, right? (laughs) (laughs) It is kind of that moment, right, of recognizing the process that you've been through. Share with us a little bit of what, like, some of your internal experience when you had that moment. Honestly, it was, so it was a month before the pandemic has really taken its toll. So I was just enjoying the moment. I was celebrating with my friends and family members. I have a video where I react to myself, like, opening the package and seeing the book because we didn't have like author copies where you edited in them. And so this was just the very first time I'd ever seen it in binding and everything like that. And the first thought that came to my mind was like, you really can't have this crazy idea in your mind or something that seems very big, like a project that is almost out of reach, but with the community, with asking questions, with finding resources and then sharing those resources with your community, like you can make this thing happen. And in that time, I was just so excited to have, you know, the author party signing books and continuing the tour and the pandemic happened. But I think I was in that moment when I realized and had to, over those past few months from March to August was a real like struggle, honestly, because I was just, I just kept pushing it back. And like, finally in August, I'll be able to sign copies. Finally in October, I'll be able to sign copies. Maybe in March of 2021. And now, you know, we're a month away from 2021 and we're still in a pandemic. And so I think at the end of August, that was when I really realized that yes, that moment that I had opening my book for the first time was magical, but the growth that I had and the personal development was undoubtedly from the experience of writing the book. And even though I don't get to celebrate it as the way that I thought I was going to, you know, because of the pandemic, 
the person that I've become is even more like something to celebrate instead of a three hour event where I'm signing books and talking about the story of it. Yeah, that's so gorgeous. So what have you done since the pandemic? Because one of the things that we promise our listeners are great tips and tricks, (laughs) how to to succeed as an author. Like what kinds of things have you done since the pandemic to keep the book on people's minds and, you know, keep your sales moving? Yeah. I mean, one of the biggest things was transitioning and pivoting to the virtual space. And, you know, that's not something that any of us were taught about. We kind of just, you know, just got into it and hoped for the best. And so that's what I did. I ended up going on 20 plus podcasts over the course of the summer and then went to a couple of youth conferences and did a virtual event. I also went to an international conference virtually for the first time. (laughs) It was hosted in Myanmar, but they were also virtual. But that was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed it. Met a bunch of other speakers. And that was the moment of momentum. You know, I was realizing that even though I can't physically go to schools, there's a real opportunity to connect with audiences like I never have before. Like, well, first, for, for starters, I've never been out of the United States. So for me to have spoken at a conference that was based out of the United States like that, it was very inspiring to me because I was like, even though you didn't get what you thought you wanted, this is even better because you're getting to reach more people, you're getting to hear more stories, you're getting to connect with more students and educators and politicians and policymakers. And that's what you wanted to do ultimately, right? Like, it's not about the vehicle that we got to, you know, to go to where we wanted to be. It's just the pivoting. And, you know, mentally making that switch in your mind, like, I don't know when this pandemic is going to end, but I can't wait for it to end for me to continue to share the story of the book, to share the experiences and to connect with the authors that the readers that I really wanted to touch with my words. That's fantastic. I'm curious, like one of the things you pointed out that actually turned out to be better is that you've gotten to reach an international audience instead of just a U.S. audience. What other things have you noticed that you've been able to leverage that actually maybe are more advantageous than what you would have done? Yeah, I think I realized the value of building relationships with people who I was talking with on podcasts, for example, with us, like I'm going to continue speaking with you because I just, I love sharing and love learning more about your story. But that was something that I didn't realize before becoming an author, you know, the way that we're taught about networking and even connecting with other people is that you talk about what you like, what you want, and you're done and you move on to the next thing. But what was really inspiring and powerful for me and having to slow down and pivot was actually taking the time to build a relationship beyond the interview, to ask more questions about how we can connect, and then also to see where like the paths of our humanity align. Because yes, I'm an author, but I, I also love music. I love painting. I love dancing around. And you know, those are things that are less, they're not seen as professional, but they're key to who you know we are. Mm-hmm. And so I think that one of the biggest things that I took from the pandemic and having to pivot was reminding myself of the humanity that comes into it. Because oftentimes when we're in the hustle culture, we just want to get things done. We want to have like 50 podcast interviews and a thousand appearances. But if you're not connecting with the people who you're sharing that message with, then you're really missing out on what the beauty of having conversations like these are. Mm. Mm. Just gorgeous. And so, so true and so wise. I think our listeners are going, she's so wise beyond her. <laughs> I can just. <laughs> so let me ask you this, because I mean, I can imagine, I mean, you're clearly a very powerful, confident woman. And at the same time, being a high school student, you know, writing your first book, working with professionals in the industry, how did you navigate? You know, I know, I mean, let me put it this way 
I, I have clients who are really well-established experts, very powerful and way, you know, two or three times your age, who sometimes feel intimidated in these conversations, right? <laughs> With the publishing house editor, you know, they're just like, or they might feel like, is it okay for me to ask for this? Is it okay for me to reject this? Did you have that experience at all in your process? And if so, how did you handle that? Most definitely. I think that if I said I didn't, that would be a lie. <laughs> that would be a disservice to you and your listeners. But I definitely had moments where I was like, should I really send this email or how can I phrase this? And oftentimes I would either go on Google, like how to ask for this or like how to pitch whatever I was asking for, just going through different Facebook groups. That was a very powerful community for me and asking these questions because if the person who you want to ask the question to seems intimidating, they're not the only person you can ask that question to. And so that was oftentimes when I did, I would turn it around and ask my siblings, ask other people who I knew were in the field, who I saw as, you know, confidants, colleagues, friends, and ask them, you know, how do I make this request? And can you look over this pitch? And they were like, yes, of course, I'll look over it. And so oftentimes it's realizing that they were also in that seat that I'm in right now. And so they have the expertise and they're more than willing to help me, you know, get into that mindset of saying, you know, this is something that I want, this is how I want to say it, and this is how you know, I'm hoping that the connection goes and here's what's going to happen if it doesn't go the way that I want it. Here's what's going to happen if it does. Of course, we can't predict these things, but just getting yourself out there and just starting, I think that's something to applaud yourself for. And so once you kind of ease yourself out of the fear or just as the phrase goes, feel the fear and do it anyway, know that there's like also a supporting community around you who has felt that fear. And if you just ask, if you just make that request, they'll be able to help you and maybe talk through the root of why you have that fear in the first place. It's so true. And so few people think to ask. I was thinking of a book I read a few years ago called The Third Door about this. Have you heard of that book? I've heard of that book. Oh my gosh, you will love If you haven't read it, you must read it. But I'm going to spoil one part of it for you. (laughs) But, you know, the author ends up interviewing Tony Shea, who's the founder of Zappos Shoes, the CEO and founder. And he asked, if he could just not interview him, he said, "Is can I just shadow you for a day? And he said, sure. So they're walking around and it's very clear to Alex Benayam, the author, that some of the people who work at Zappos seem a little miffed that he gets to shadow Tony Shea and none of them have ever shadowed Tony Shea or whatever. And so or that's what it appears. So Alex asks him, so have you ever had anyone on your team shadow you? Cause he could sense the bad vibe, you know, and, <laughs> and Tony Shea says, no. And he goes, why not? He said, no one ever asked. Mm. I mean, think about that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it seems like a daunting <laughs> idea, but no one else is doing it. So you might as well be the sore thumb or whatever. Right. I mean, if you don't ask, you will not receive. Right. And, you know, as I'm listening to you, another thing that's occurring to me you know, from, you know, being a couple, a few generations ahead of you, but I'm thinking of the future workforce and who do I want to be hiring? Who do I want to be leading my teams down the road? And what I'm hearing in this education model that you're proposing, right, where it's more self-generated, I'm hearing actually a much better qualified and more resourceful and potential to have a workforce that is way more productive, way more resourceful. Because one of the most frustrating things 
you know, as a business leader is if you have a bunch of people who are just waiting around being told what to do next, which is exactly what our current education system generates. So I'm curious to hear your thoughts on that, because that's just something that's popped into my Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) even in the conversation on the future of work, it's everything is being robotized. I think that's the term. Just like everything is becoming more. Oh, like automated. Yes, automated. That's the word to do the work for us. And it's scary because people are realizing that teaching people things that you can find online isn't going to work in the future of work that we are building. And unless we are redefining the education system and rebuilding it from the ground up to talk about core values like vulnerability, authenticity, credibility, creativity, and just a desire to connect and even confidence. Because just like you said, people are waiting for people to tell them what to do. In the future of work, we are envisioning a place where people don't need to be told what's next. They're already hoping and they already have it in line of their trajectory of this is what I want to happen. And these are the steps that I'm going to take to do my very best that it does happen. And so Honestly, it's moving past the classroom. I'm going to use an analogy here, like the whiteboard and pushing students to create their own vision boards and Mm -hmm. to have reflection boards as well so that they're constantly in a state of critical thinking, self-analysis, personal development, and then asking their friends questions that go beyond the surface level. That's honestly something that fascinates me about the friendships that I've been able to create in college and even the way that I'm just navigating the world now after thinking about how we could change the education system and I'm finding common ground and finding a real sense of community and connection with people who are also doing the inner work for themselves and defining what that inner work means so that as a community, we can work towards building and investing in each other in a real intentional way. And so unless the education system pivots towards that and having hard conversations, especially on American history, because uh, you can't find your root if you don't know the roots. You know, it's just like. This is a conversation we need to have. I was just about to go there because I'm like, that's the other thing that is like massively dysfunctional about our educational system. You know, it's just a whitewash really of Mm -hmm. history and it completely downplays or downright contradicts the facts of our actual history. And, you know, so I'm curious in your vision of education, like how are we quote, teaching history, because it really, you know, I remember just feeling so cheated when it was years after I finished high school, by the way, where before I even started to get an inkling of the actual history of how we treated African-Americans and Native Americans, you know, to the extent. And I felt cheated of out of having had that understanding. Do you know what I'm saying? I felt like I was what I was. I was lied to. We were lied to. And then you enter the adult world with a completely messed up worldview that you don't even know the world you're in. So I'm curious, what is Deborah's um, (laughs) self-generating educational model? What does this look like when it comes to really reconciling our history? I'm really curious to hear about that. And I know it's going to be some fluidity to it, but I'd just love to hear your thoughts. Honestly, I think it would be first in hearing what students want to learn and then acknowledging that what we've been taught is a lie. I think until the education system comes, just says it straight, like we have been telling you lies for years, ever since you started in this education system, that would be a really great place to go. Because even in the conversation on education reform, you'll tell people, you know, we need to make all these changes. But if they're in a mindset of, 
nothing's wrong, why do we need to fix it? Then we can't even talk about the progress that we need. It's the same thing with history. If people don't realize that it's a lie and that there's so many pieces of the puzzle that have been forgotten, they're just going to be like, you're destroying American history and like you're trying to add things that don't exist. And it's like, no, these things exist. You just were told a lie and you were only told half of the story. And that's why we need to get you caught up on everything else that has been going on that you just neglected to acknowledge. And then the other part of it is realizing that the effects of history affects the people who we are today. And so just leaving on a base conversation, I always hate this whenever I was in like a world history class or just any history class in my high school. The only time we talked about black innovators or creators was during black history month. And it was the same month every single time. And then when talking about black history, it was only about slavery. And it's like, you're not telling the story of before slavery. You're not telling the story of, you know, the Renaissance. You're not telling the story of things that are the Harlem Renaissance. That's what I was referring to, but you're not telling the story of black Americans today and the struggles that still exist because 2008 is still history, but we're not learning about it because this is where we have to start. And we have to acknowledge that the effects of slavery are still affecting black Americans today. And then just have a conversation with younger students of what it means to be represented, to feel visible, to feel seen. And then how to create a sense of belonging and connection in the classroom to the point where I can ask questions about my history and get answers because people have actually taken the time to study it. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Which is another huge point, right? Like you have to have teachers who understand the history. Yeah. I mean, at least enough to have a conversation going. Yeah. And, you know, I'm thinking, in my opinion, I think that the only way our country can become truly great is by acknowledging these very long and dark shadows that we have in our history and confronting them directly and definitely in the educational system is the place that we need to be doing that. So I love that you're, you know, this idea of, I mean, it sounds like so much of what you're advocating for is really self-generating, you know, and I'm imagining that, do you ever get pushback? Like, well, if you don't give them assignments, they won't do anything or any kind of thought like that. You do? Yes. Yes. People always say that, you know, we've been taught to follow the rules all this time. So when you tell kids, do whatever you want, what are they going to do? I always try to bring it back to this family psychologist. He goes by Mr. Chaz on Instagram and TikTok. And he talks about how creativity is honestly the root of how all of these problems that we have in education exist. Because when you stifle the creativity, Students don't have an idea of what path to take because they've never had to think for themselves. The thought has already been given to them. And so he was talking about how whenever you buy something for your child or if you have a toy and there's a box, instead of letting them play with the toy, give them the box and see what they do with it. And it was just such a magical, he was showing videos because people had said it and it was such a magical just demonstration of how these students, these young children, like I think it was three to five, were turning the boxes into little kitchen sets, you know, instead of buying a kitchen set for your kid, let them make it out of boxes. And it's just like acknowledging the root of where all these problems start is how we can get better. But saying, oh, what are the students going to do? Because they've always been taught we have to keep doing this way because they're not going to know what to do. That doesn't help us get close to the solution. That moves us even further and further away from the goalpost because continuing to deny generations and generations of children the opportunity to create and connect, going right back to what I was saying earlier, and to understand, you know, the fullness of their humanity instead of math, algebra, English, history. These are all the things you have to do to be a successful person and not these are the ideas that I want to explore and these are the topics that sound really interesting. From a five-year-old, it's probably not going to sound like that. It's probably just going to be coloring and wanting to play. But 
let kids play, let young adults play, let adults play because that's been robbed of us for so long. Mm -hmm. oh, there's so much good stuff in there. I just, <laughs> my mind is going, which, which one do you grab? But I mean, I'm just thinking back, I mean, this is silly, but I'm just thinking back to when my kids were young. And one of the things that I did was um, we had no t external television. And so from about, yes, yeah, so for like a lot of the formative years, like three to eight. And if they came to me and announced that they were bored, I suggested that they could find something to do or I could find them mature. And it's amazing what they found. <laughs> <laughs> My mother used to say that. <laughs> I'm like, well, you can play or, you know, there's laundry that needs folding or something. <laughs> or the bathroom could use a cleanup. <laughs> oh, not the bathroom. <laughs> yeah, but I think that that is so, because um, one of the things too that, people struggle with is, you know, when they've been so pigeonholed and especially at such an early age, you know, it's hard to create a fulfilling life when you've been so disconnected from what you really want and what your natural inclinations are. And that's a element where the education system plays a role, but also parents play a role. Do you have any commentary on where parents fit into a picture like this? Oh, for sure. And I even did a chapter in the book where I interviewed my mom to talk about her, what her thought process was for raising five kids, because I'm the fourth of five. And in that conversation, I learned a lot about my mom that I did not know before. But I started to realize when I was looking back at my childhood, and a really big part of it is being a cheerleader and allowing your kids to play. Like my father was kind of the complete opposite. He was more education driven and my mom cared about academics too, but she really, really cared about extracurricular activities. And so she would put us in, she would ask us if we wanted to be in chorus and band and like encourage us to play the violin and the piano and the clarinet. And while there are some things that I don't do anymore, I just, I've had so many extracurricular activities at my disposal. And now as a college student, I still understand that I can have a lot of interest and still be focused on my academics at the same time. It isn't one or the other, it's both of them working together so that you don't raise children who find their value and find their worth in grades or numbers and points, and instead find their value in the thing that really wakes them up and gets them excited about the world. Like right now I'm fascinated by the world of graphic design and photography and music and how artists put tracks together. And that's not a major, but it's an interest that I'm very, very into. And whenever people talk about it, I get so excited because the way that my mother raised us was you can have interests that are outside of the education system. Now, I'm not going to tell you like culturally, because I'm Nigerian American, the three careers that people usually go into is, you know, being a lawyer, a doctor or engineer. I'm not going to tell you that these are the things you have to do. Instead, I'm going to like really give you the motivation and be like a cheerleader, you know, with whatever path you decide to go into instead of saying it must be this and nothing else. And that is an incredible privilege and gift that I have because parenting, of course, is a very, very big part of the way that we see our world and the way we navigate things. But there are even some conversations that I'm having now with a therapist on healing my inner child and, you know, finding, you know, where in my childhood where I wasn't allowed necessarily to have that creativity or felt the pressure of trying to get into a competitive high school of doing well in middle school and trying to make sure that my grades were still up to par while pursuing these different interests, connecting with my siblings and then just finding a sense of community and understanding what that word meant to me to begin with. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
there's a lot there. There's really a lot there. And, you know, it's hard. I think a lot of parents are, you know, looking at it from a very well-meaning point of view, but I've seen so many kids, even, you know, in like some of my kids' friends, you know, either in high school or college where like their parents had very specific ideas of what they should do with their lives, you know, and usually it was these kinds of careers that are supposedly secure. Yeah. And, you know, it's a shame because I don't believe that that's where the security comes from. I think it comes from doing something that you want to leap out of bed every morning and get going on because then you're unstoppable and of course you'll succeed. You know, it's when you feel like you have to drag yourself to the office every day that it's going to get rocky, (laughs) to say the least. (laughs) And that's directly related to like the mission statement of my podcast. I don't know if I mentioned it, but I started one in October called the Voices of Disruption podcast. And the whole push is for members of Generation Z to step into their power. Because when you lay it out plainly like that, not only does it sound empowering, but it's realizing that this is something you already have within you. It's just under the surface. You're uncovering it. You are already the person who you are becoming. It just takes work to get there. And so once we allow students to realize the securities and knowing who they are and knowing the person that they want to be, there's no career, there's no amount of money, there's no person who's going to make you feel secure in yourself, but you. Yeah, absolutely. And to have just the idea of having an entire generation that gets that makes me want to live, you know, an extra 30 years just to hang out with them. Love to have you. <laughs> like beyond 80, I mean. <laughs> beyond, beyond. This 200. <laughs> so let's talk a little bit about how has authoring your book helped you to spread the message of your work? Like what are some of the differences that you notice pre-book completion and since? I think it was the share. Yeah. I think the biggest part was in the messaging because I had never, I had an Instagram when I was in the sixth grade, but I didn't really use it. So I only started using the platform in the summer of 2019, right as I was about to start talking about pre-orders and I was, my twin sister created this Instagram account for me. And so she was like running and accepting people to follow me and whatnot, but there weren't any posts on there. I was just known as someone who didn't really post on Instagram and (laughs) If you ask my friends now, that's entirely different from how I approach social media now. But when I was first starting on social media, it was very like, buy my book, buy my book, buy my book. Like, this is the book. It's not really about Deborah. It's the book. Like, this is the most important thing. And so that was before I started having conversations with my mentor who was like, you know, you got to engage first and sell second. No one is just going to go on a page and want to be bombarded by the message of a book. And there's no humanity behind it. It's just a product. When you're building a brand, you're building you. And it's like, what do you represent? What do you care about? And so I have archived some of these posts. Some of them are still there on my Instagram, but I was even noticing the different kind of language in my captions and the responses that I'm getting now from the way that I approach social media. than when I was just trying to do it from a selling standpoint and seeing people who followed me as customers instead of community members. I see was making that shift in my mind. Like, yes, I've written a book, but I'm not just an author. I'm also a human being who has interests. I can share those interests. I can share parts of my personal life. And that's what people really want to see, you know, because writing a book isn't a small feat. It's not something that people can just, you know, pick up a pen and send it to a publishing house and bam, they're done in 24 hours. Like it's a very intimidating thing. And so when you can relate with people and a humanity and allow them to see you like, Hey, I wrote this book, but it's not all I am. You know, I'm also somebody who really loves art. I'm interested in different areas. And there are so many ways where we relate and connect 
that's when they're interested in, hey, you know, she wrote this book. I think I'm going to check it out instead of, oh my gosh, it's a girl with the book. Right. So that was a big, <laughs> that was a big shift. Deborah's book. Yeah. And it sounds harsh when you say it out loud, but the sooner you realize it, the better. So true. So true. And I even had a guest earlier this year who is a social media expert who said the exact same thing. So you're absolutely correct about that. But it's great to hear an author who really gets that so deeply because that is so important. All right. So you got on Instagram. And then you've been doing the speaking. I mean, your book hasn't been out a, a very long time. Have you seen new initiatives sprouting in different classrooms? Or tell me a little bit more about how, you know, what's going on with your community. Yeah. So before I've written my book, I actually started a club called the Student Leadership Initiative Program. And it's still running in the high school that I went to school in and then another school in Tennessee. I'm not really sure what the vision for that organization is anymore, but that was honestly the first idea of student agency and community that ended up, you know, inspiring me to write the book because I didn't just want it to touch 20 kids in my high school. You know, I wanted to touch students all across the globe. And so that's an organization that's running. There's another program called the Dice Initiative. One of my friends, Zoe Jenkins, she started this past summer and I've seen so many more initiatives and so much more agency coming from my community around student voice and representation not just to seat at the table anymore, but also the ability to vote, the ability to write some of these bills that we're talking about. And if we're not there yet, but just having that conversation of students need representation, but we don't just want to sit here and listen. We also want to be able to give our voices and it to be taken seriously. Mm -hmm. And I learned a lot of that from my twin sister. Um, another fun fact, I have an identical twin and her name is Dorcas. And she was the first student representative on the State Board of Education for Delaware. And so having somebody in that position or writing a book on education was, it was awe-inspiring because I was seeing just the beginning parts of the message being told, but also hearing feedback directly, not from a watered-down perspective of, you know, I get to be in this position of power and get to, you know, be a voice for a lot of students, but there's so many areas that need to change. And there's no like one check mark that they need to, you know, do in order to get student voice. It's continuous effort and it's a continuous moment of impact. And unless we're listening, unless the conversation goes into action, that's when we can really say that the initiatives are doing the work and that adults are finally listening and taking action on what we've said. You know, can we just, um, the next time the secretary of the Department of Education position becomes available, can we just nominate you? <laughs> I think Honestly, that. I, I, I think love that, it. I think that would be the <laughs> The big, the next step. <laughs> Youth Secretary of Education. I can see that. Yeah, I, just having a person who's in our age group and Gen Zer as the, right? the Secretary of Education. That would be so powerful. It would be. It would be. You know, Gen Z. I think it's such a bad rap. What do you think, people? Let's assume that there's some old fogies listening to this show. What do you want people who are like judging Gen Z to know about Gen Z? Honestly, the biggest thing I want them to think about is back to their childhood and back to their, their time being a teenager and think about the differences generationally of the challenges that we're facing and the challenges that they face. Because we have social media, people say that we're lazy, that we're on our phones all the time. But, you know, people were making fun of TikTok in 2017 and 2019. And I was somebody who was like, I don't know how serious this is. A lot of my friends are into it, but, you know, it's just kind of there. I'm not going to 
go to a whole other app because it doesn't seem like it has as much potential. But I think we could see Gen Z in the same way that we see TikTok. <laughs> but there's a lot of similarities. But it would surprise you. You know, not a lot of people thought that Gen Z had a lot of potential, especially when I was 14. All I was hearing was, all you guys do is you're on your phones, like I said earlier, and you know, you're not saying anything of substance, but it's like, you're just judging us from the early stages when you have to have those moments of ignorance in order to grow. You have to have those moments where you're just figuring things out, just like the TikTok platform was, and the, the onset of the product that it eventually is now, and even the progress that it's going to keep making years and years and years from now, because I don't think TikTok is going away. And neither is Generation Z, you know, <laughs> we're here to stay. And so while you may see our generation as people who don't know what we're doing, we're figuring things out and that's a part of our growth and part of our journey. And instead of tearing us down and saying, oh, you don't know what you're doing, you're just lazy all the time. Why don't you join, you know, get on the caboose, you know, join the club and help motivate and encourage and inspire us. Because the way that I see it is that you have so much to learn from us and we also have so much to learn from you. And so when we get to that conversation, then we can work together in creating the world that we want instead of continuing to, you know, throw jabs, whether it's Gen Z, millennials, millennials, boomers, you know, we don't need to do that. We don't need to have more generational conflict than we already have. So honestly, just if you're, a, <laughs> I don't want to call you a boomer, but if you're part of Gen X or Gen Y and you're listening to the podcast, I encourage you to make friends with a Gen Z. We will blow your mind. <laughs> I can, I can assure I mean, you know, because really, I actually wrote a blog post uh, not too long ago about why you need to hire Gen Z to save your business. Because I personally believe that Gen Z, if you want to stay leading edge in your business, if you want to stay relevant, you need to have at least one Gen Z or on your team. You know, <laughs> like, like I have a few on my team, but I am so grateful for because people have to realize, I think, you guys are on your phones and you're on the internet, but nobody's asking what they're doing. <laughs> <laughs> Don't just assume that they're on their phones screwing around. Because in my experience, they're reading, they're researching, they're learning, they're doing their own self-directed, you know, you Gen Zers are doing your own self-directed learning because you figured out that the world's in crisis and no one's coming to rescue you. So you better do it yourself. Exactly. And if, you know, and I can see that that's what's going on. And I think that, you know, already this generation and who knows the next one, hopefully will be even more innovative and independent, but really I think that us older folks need to recognize that we should be very grateful for these you know, innovative, outside the box, outside our old box thinking <laughs> people, because you all are literally the, you know, the digital natives. You know, the reason why you're on the phone all the time is because your mother handed you one when you were 18 months old. And you know, whose fault is that? <laughs> I'm not saying your mother in particular, but I, you know, I remember seeing two-year-olds playing on iPads while their moms were getting their pedicures, you know? So this is, you know, 20 years ago. So here we are. But yeah, so I just think that this really seems like your message is coming out at the exact right time, you know, for when we need it the most. Of this idea of really empowering kids to create their own education. 
Now, how do you do this inside of a traditional school model, right? Because if we're going to wait for the politicians to fix it or the school boards to fix it before we can receive these rewards, then we'll be waiting forever. So how do you recommend that both kids and educators, right, embrace this without necessarily having to wait for permission? Oh, for sure. And if you want an even longer answer, you can read the book because that is the essential question that I answer. But one of the biggest things is just acknowledging and affirming your students for the ideas that they have, not having such a rigid curriculum. I remember one of the ideas that I proposed was asking, you know, your teacher if, you know, you may have a rigid syllabus or, you know, what you're going to do for the semester come up with another idea that really resonates with you. Maybe you're a visual learner and you want to present the information that you've been taught in that way. That's a really big way to take a pivot from the traditional, you know, way of educating with pen and paper and always having to write essays. Not everyone is a really strong writer because they haven't been able to get the root of what they want to write about. So maybe instead of just having a broad English class that has, you know, state aligned curriculums, why don't we just have a creative writing class where students can just explore the many different kinds of writing, explore writers that look like them, first and foremost, and then connect with each other on the work that they've created and maybe have a poetry slam at the end of the year. Maybe that's their final instead of a written exam. And so I think it needs to move towards a much more hands-on and visual education, almost thinking like an engineer. You know, the problem is that students are unengaged. The solution is that the student knows how to be engaged. So ask us the questions, listen to what we have to say, and then implement that into the curriculum and know that it's something that's continuing to change. You know, what works group of students one year might not work for the next group of students the next year. And so honestly, have those conversations. Definitely read the book. Um, and then just Give continue. The title of the book again. Unleashing Your Innovative Genius, High School Redesigned. Okay, thank you. Yeah, just continue to ask questions and then come from a place of wanting to understand that, you know, we're not machines. We have mental health. Some people have mental health struggles. Everyone has mental health as something that should be a priority just as much as physical health and including that in the education system instead of overworking students. That's something that we really can do now on a traditional level and start having conversations and take action on so that we don't have to wait for politicians or even honestly from a student activist perspective, we're trying to do the work, especially with race-based curriculum. It's going to take time, but we can start having those conversations and the action right now. Yeah, brilliant, brilliant. Love it. So um, what are some uh, parting thoughts that you would like to leave our listeners with? Gosh, we covered so much. (laughs) So I'm just going to give you the floor of, you know, what is present for you now that you'd like to share? One of the biggest things that I've been learning from my freshman college, because I don't know if that was clear either, that, you know, I'd published the book when I was 17. I turned 18 in August. And now I'm a freshman at the University of Pennsylvania. But I think the biggest thing that I've been working on in continuing education is understanding that, one, college is not for everyone. And that's not a taboo thing to say. You know, some of my friends took gap years. Some of my friends decided to go directly into work. And that's a path that they wanted to choose for themselves. No one has the same path. And if we all did, it'd be boring and we get bored of each other. And then there's so much growth that exists outside of the institutions that we go to. And the validation that I seek is never from the name of where I go to school. And while the reason why I ended up applying to Penn to begin with was because I'm a nursing major and I really connected with the faculty here and the community, what I've been really benefiting from and getting a lot of value is 
having a moment to take steps back and think of who I am in this space. And then what stories do I want to tell? What stories have I not listening to? Or am I not, you know, really giving attention to what stories have I heard for a really long time? I need to put back on the shelf. You know, I see every single one of my friends as a storyteller. I see them as the incredible and beautiful souls that they are. And I honestly try to affirm their humanity in every single conversation that we have, because it's something that we all need on a daily basis and something that we need to continue doing as communities members. The other thing is, is check up on the people around you. People are not doing well in terms of their mental health. We're spending even more time alone. And while there's benefits to that, there's also downsides to that. No one is positive all the time. No one is negative all the time, but having a space to talk about those feelings, I think that's also a really big place that we need to go towards in terms of education and even just in the way we navigate through the world. And then from a Gen Z standpoint, understand that not every Gen Zer has the same aspirations. Not every Gen Zer wants to be an author, an artist, a, you know, a TV producer. Every single person has their own path and their own form of power and allowing them to fully step into it in however way that they want, that's progress. Not pushing your student to do X, Y, and Z because it worked for this student or you know, they're doing amazing and I want you to be the exact mirror of them. Allow the people in your community to be who they are in the fullness of that and then just continue to create and connect with people that you meet. Beautifully said. And I have a feeling, Deborah, that we're going to see more books. And <laughs> for sure. <laughs> well, thank you again so much for sharing with us today. It was such a pleasure to speak with you. I cannot wait for this episode to come out because I'm going to listen to it again and take notes even more. But I really, really, I love speaking with you and I'm so excited to continue to connect with you and your journey. Me and with you as well. Thank you for tuning in to another amazing episode of The Author's Corner. You're one step closer to writing the world-changing book you've dreamed about for years. To access today's show notes and other helpful resources, simply visit our website at theauthorscorner.com. A positive review would be appreciated. Until next time.